I grew up in the 60s. I was six years old in 1961. And I can remember black and white TV. I remember when we got our first color television. Does anybody remember that? Are you willing to admit you know that too? And um, I, I was thinking as I was preparing for this message on how God gives us power for mission, I was trying to think of how I could illustrate this. And I thought of something that I hope will just resonate with you. I love, love, love the Mission Impossible movies. And Tom Cruise is just a phenomenal actor. I read an article on Tom Cruise of how that he performs his own stunts. And he literally, if you saw, I forget which movie it was, he literally hung on to the side of that airplane while it was taking off. And I'm just kind of in awe in his talent. And if you've ever watched those movies and Tom Cruise is like, he's the big deal. He's the big cheese. He's the, he's the star. But if you remember the 60s, the old Mission Impossible TV series, how many of you remember that? Can you remember that series? Well, there were no superstars. There were no Tom Cruises in the Mission Impossible television show. It really was a team effort. It was a team that worked together and they were giving impossible missions. This is the reason they called it Mission Impossible. And when Peter Graves would receive that little tape-recorded message, and then it would go up in a puff of smoke, and it was, this is your mission, should you choose to accept it? And then this team that had some very talented people, but none of them were a Tom Cruise. None of them were the superstars. They were just a group of ordinary people with some talents that worked together courageously to accomplish something. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, wow, that's a, to me, that just really illustrates what I want to talk to you about this morning, God's power for the team. Now, I want you to think of the team as being the church. So when I talk about the team this morning, I'm talking about the church. And the Bible says in Ephesians 1 and verse 19, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us, say that word with me, us, we're the team, we're the church, so God's power is for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realm. So notice that God has power for us. But in the second passage I want you to look at, because we want every member to be empowered, and that's what our pastoral team exists to do, to, to empower you, to, to, to release you, to use the gifts, the talents that God has called you to do. But the day of Pentecost came so that all of us could be given power. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 2. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all of his mysteries and making everything as plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. So there is a counterbalance to this thing of power. Paul says we can be a powerful church, we can even be a powerful Christian, but if we don't have love, then we are nothing. And there are a lot of influential, powerful businesses and organizations and churches. But if we lack love for God, love for one another, and love for lost people, that according to 1 Corinthians 13, that famous love chapter, then we're nothing. Now, you've got to remember, because most of you have only heard 1 Corinthians 13 read at a wedding. 
But the reason 1 Corinthians 13 was written was because there was a church that was tearing itself apart. Rather than loving lost people and rather than loving God, they were fighting with one another. I mean, how can that be? What an oxymoron for a family to fight with one another. I mean, if you want to see a clear illustration of the power of sin in our world is when a husband and a wife that commit themselves to love each other till death do us part, and then they violently rip that marriage and rip that family apart. Or if you want to take it further and to see where children turn on their parents, you, we see what happens when sin gets in the picture. Well, the same thing happens to churches. Lee Iacocca that Pastor Rick knew, and I gave Pastor Rick a book years ago to read called Iacocca, and in that book that I also have a copy of, Lee Iacocca asked Vince Lombardi, the great football coach, he says, what makes a really great team? And Vince Lombardi told him, he says, what makes a great team, he says, are three things. And most good teams have two of them down. That's the fundamentals. In other words, that would be the doctrines of the church for us. And that's the discipline. In other words, that would be carrying out what God calls us to do. But then Lombardi goes on to say, but if you really want to have a great team, if you really want to have a team that is over the top, then you've got to have a third quality to that team, and they've got to care for one another. They've got to love one another. I thought, well, that's a really interesting thing for a football coach to say to the head of the Chrysler Corporation, and it's a good lesson for me as well, because Lombardi goes on to say, if when a team cares about each other, and he says they're on the line, each guy is thinking about the next guy to him. Each guy is thinking about who he's supposed to protect. So he says, a great football player that cares about his teammate says, if I don't block that man, Paul is going to get his legs broken. I have to do my job well in order that he can do his job well. And what a great illustration and message for the church. Lombardi goes on to say, and I'm quoting, the difference between mediocrity and greatness is the feeling that these guys have for each other. And I want you to know the difference between a great church and a church that is just over the top, not a church that the world looks at and goes, oh, that's a great church or that's a successful church, but a church that God looks at and says, that's a success, and a church that that hell is threatened by is a church that not only loves God, but they love and care for each other, and they love lost people as well. They understand the mission that God has given to us. As a matter of fact, Jesus would say, this is how that people know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And so I don't want this to be a creepy moment or anything. I didn't ask the first service to do this, but if, if you know the person sitting next to you, and if you don't, just you know, don't do this because this could be a little weird, but look at the person sitting next to you and say, hey, I love you. I really love you. Corey, I love you, man. I love you, Ben. I love you too. Do you get it? We, we love and we care for one another, Pat. We just, something about the quality of life. And Jenna, I see you sitting way in the back and I love you, sweetheart. It's important that we understand that's what a healthy church does. This week I was in a meeting that I was told about a church that is just literally ripping itself apart in the absence of a pastor, tearing itself apart, fighting with one another. And here's a church that has turned upon itself and hell is laughing because they're no threat 
to the devil. They're no good to their community because they're fighting with one another. And I thought to myself, this is why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. And sometimes people ask me, where are the miracles? Where are the powerful things that you read about in the Bible? Why don't we see those anymore? We do see those. I've seen them here in this congregation. I've seen them in the lives of people in this church. I've seen them in our community praying for people. I've seen them overseas. But they tend to happen where, not where you're just focused on power, but where you're focused on loving one another and the mission that God gives you. So you stop and put these two things together, power and love, and you have to ask yourself then, why does God give us His power? He gives us His power so we can share His blessings with other people. So I'm going to ask you, to, if you would, to stand out of respect for the Lord, and let me take you to the text I want to really dig into this morning. Now, Jesus has just finished some great miracles. He's, he's healed a woman with an issue of blood. He's raised a little girl that was dead. He's raised her and given her back her life. I mean, there's been some tremendous miracles that's taken place. And so there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of success. The crowds are there. And Jesus decides he's going to leave this momentum. And, and that's everything that leadership books tell you. Capitalize on the big mo. Capitalize on the success. Stay with it. And Jesus just abandons that because of a principle that I want you to get this morning. So let's look together. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus, Jesus in the boat, and they started out leaving the crowds behind. Although other boats followed, but soon a fierce storm came up, and high waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Now, it's interesting. I want you to just stop and think about this. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. Let's read that together. Jesus was sleeping in the boat with, with his head on a cushion. Back of the boat. Now, when Jesus goes to sleep, a prayer meeting breaks out. The disciples woke him up. They're praying. They're shouting. I mean, you ever heard somebody pray really loud? They're having a prayer meeting. Jesus, teacher, don't you care we're going to drown? I mean... They're worried about their lives. Now, one time when Jesus was about to die, and he asked his disciples, will you not pray with me? Will you not stay awake and pray with me? When Jesus is about to die, they don't care. They go to sleep. But when they're about to die, a prayer meeting breaks out. I don't want you to forget that. That's an important point. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the wave, Silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I mean, you've seen these miracles. And the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Father, would you speak to our hearts about what it means to be a powerful, loving, and influential congregation In your eyes, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated this morning. Sometimes when you're having some of your greatest successes in life, the Lord will call you to do something that you'll just say, 
this can't be the Lord. I mean, look how well everything is going. Or you might even be tempted to say, now listen, this is important. I've said this. Becky said this. You've probably said this. I gave up this to follow Jesus. I mean, really, let's think about it for just a moment. What did we give up to follow Jesus? You know what the Apostle Paul said about that one time? He said, I count it as dung. You know, let me be really blunt, okay? He says, I count it as poo-poo. That's what he's saying. I would really like to be blunter than that, but you get the picture, okay? He says, I count it as dung. To follow Jesus? Ah, that's the greatest privilege. That's the greatest joy in the world. Everything else, that's just, you know, dunk. I mean, that is, I, I don't want to live near dunk. Do you? I mean, I, I remember an outhouse back on the family farm. I hated the outhouse. In the summertime, I really hated the outhouse. I hated the pig pen. I told you all about that the other day. Just uh, the smell, the, the, the bugs. Paul says, I, I leave that behind gladly for the privilege of following Christ. And you go, really? Because Paul was very successful in what he was doing. He was trusted by the Sanhedrin. He was given authority. He was given power. He had influence. I mean, the Bible even took note of him before he became a Christian. I mean, we're talking about him before he even became a Christian. That's how powerful and influential his story was. But he said of everything else that he, quote, gave up to follow Christ, he counted it as dung. I can't think of one thing in my life that I gave up that has any real value to follow Jesus. And so Jesus sometimes calls us when things are going so well to do something so different. He's going to the Gentiles. He's going to leave the Jews, the chosen people of God. I mean, he's even said that God has called me to the Jewish people. He's going to leave them and he's going to go to the Gentiles. Now, you really, you got to understand this because in the next chapter, and we'll close with that chapter He's going to a place that no rabbi, no teacher would go. He's going to the land of the Gentiles, and the first thing he's going to do is go to a cemetery, which no rabbi would go into a cemetery. When I was studying in Israel, we went to this place, this area, this general vicinity, and I remember a professor saying, this is a place that no rabbi, no Levite would have ever dared to come to. If a Jewish person came there, they were unclean. And Jesus goes right into the middle, not just of the land of the Gentiles, but the most unclean place of the Gentiles. And an unclean thing happens, but Jesus goes to where people are hurting. Jesus goes to the unclean places because like Vince Lombardi said, I mean, the doctrine was there, the discipline was there, but he also had the love. He also had the care. One of the most enlightening things, conversations I've ever had, I had with Shimon Perez's press secretary, and I've told you about this before, but when we're sitting talking in Jerusalem, and he told me, when I asked him about some of the differences between our faith as Christians and his faith as a Jewish person, and I was, I'm always so moved to remember how he knew so much about our faith, but I can see his face looking at me right now, he says, I don't need to be born again. I'm already chosen. And yet it was to Nicodemus, a respected rabbi, 
a respected teacher that Jesus welcomed, even though Nicodemus was afraid of what other people would think about him. So he came at night where anybody could, so no one could see him. And Jesus looked at this respected rabbi, this respected member of the Sanhedrin, and he says to him, Nick, you too have got to be born again. So it doesn't matter how much of a part of the cool kids group you think you are. It doesn't matter how chosen you think you are. You and I still have to come to terms with the fact we must be born again. Uh, Let me point out one more thing about what Jesus is doing. The Jewish people had a passionate dislike, almost hatred, for the Gentiles. And they had forgotten what God had said to Abraham, that through Abraham, all the nations were going to be blessed. But what Jesus is doing, he who is all power, he who is all love, he who is God incarnate, Jesus is on a mission. And he's teaching the disciples that you're going to share my mission. He's teaching us as a congregation, you're going to share my mission. I'm going to give you power for the mission. Not power to be comfortable, not power to take it easy, but power for the mission. Jesus calls people not to comfort, but he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. And so he says to the disciples when they wake him up in the prayer meeting, and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we perish? He goes, why are you got so little faith? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You could drown. But if you drown, you just open your eyes in the presence of Jesus Christ. Death holds no terror. Death holds no fear for the person that's been born again. For we know no matter what this world may do to us, Jesus says, fear not him and fear not anything that can destroy your body. Fear him who can destroy your soul. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't have to live your life in fear. So I ask myself this question, what would happen to us as a congregation if Jesus went to sleep on us? Now, I know that's not good theology, for the Bible tells us that God never slumbers, God never sleeps. But what if Jesus decided he would no longer hear our prayers? What if Jesus left us alone? It wouldn't be long before you and I would be crying out, God, don't you care that we perish because we're self-interested. Our families, our health, our futures, our ministries, our jobs, our careers, our finances. But how often when it comes, when Jesus says to us, will you not tarry with me for one hour? Will you not pray for me within one hour? When Jesus calls us to prayer, we go to sleep on Jesus because as long as we're comfortable, as long as we're taken care of, we could care less about what's happening in the rest of the world. And there's a lesson for us here. And I think Lombardi caught it. Jesus responded to the cries of the disciples because he loved them. And Jesus asked them to pray with him because he loved them. And he knew the best thing they could do was stay awake with him. I've often wondered, I've often wondered through the years, how did those disciples feel when they remembered on the night he was betrayed, I slumbered. On the night he was betrayed, I slept. On the night he was betrayed, I ran away. You see, when our time of crisis comes, I want us to call out to the Lord. But when the Lord calls out to us during a time of crisis for others, for the church, for the community, for the nation, I also want us to answer the call of the Lord as a congregation. Can you say amen?
Tertullian, who was a figure that I studied quite a bit, one of my professors, because of some of my questions, encouraged me. When I was a young student, he said, I want you to study the life of Tertullian. I want you to read his writings. And, and we had a great library in my college. It was small compared to a lot of university libraries like the University of Michigan or the University of Georgia, but some rich, rich works in there. And I used to go sit for hours in the library and read. And some of these books you couldn't even check out, but they let you read. But Tertullian said this about this passage of Scripture. It's from a book called Latin Christianity. When you think Latin, you've got to think Italian, the Italian Christians. Now, Tertullian wasn't Italian, but this was one of the things that the Italian church captured that he said. That little ship, the boat that he and the disciples were in, it did present a figure of the church and that she is disquieted in the sea, that is, in the world, by the waves, that is, by persecutions and temptations. The Lord, through patience, sleeping as it were, until roused in their last extremities by the prayers of the saints, He checks the world and He restores tranquility to His own. I meet all kinds of people who tell me how bad the world is. And yet I look for those people in Saturday night prayer, and I don't see them there. And I wonder about that sometime. Because these very same people, whether it's in the community or in the church, when they're going through a storm, they want us to pray. But when the Lord calls us to prayer, they're asleep in the garden. And gardens are a wonderful place. Life began in a garden. But God calls us all. And I believe that this is an alarm clock. In an hour for America and in an hour for the church that the Lord has called me to preach upon. <clears throat> you see, God gives me power when I obey Him. God gives me power when I obey. When I preach Christ. It's like I'm taking a whip to the very back of the devil. When I preach Christ, it's like I'm taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and I'm attacking Him, and I'm slaying the powers and dominions of hell that come against us when I preach Christ. When you share Christ in your community or with your neighbors or on your job, when you go through a crisis or a trial, and you stand fast for Jesus, and you share the love and the grace of God, you are taking a whip, and you're driving back the powers of hell, and you're saying, Satan, you you will not cross here with your bitterness. You will not cross here with your loss. I am standing on the blood of Jesus Christ. And God gives us power and victories. We obey Him. When I preach Christ, the very foundations of hell are shaken. If I preach good works, if I preach lovely little messages that everybody are pleased to hear, but I don't mention the cross or I don't mention the blood or I don't mention the resurrection or the return of Christ, it may be a beautiful message, but there is no power and hell is not threatened. But when you preach Christ crucified, risen from the dead, and returning again in your lives, your subdivisions, your communities, your jobs, wherever you are, you shake the very foundations of hell. They fear you. And that's the reason so many times that storms try to come against us. It's the reason that I ask you to pray for me that I may boldly preach the gospel of Christ. When Becky began her business, we knew we were going to have to get a very secure internet connection. We knew we were going to have to get a very secure uh, programs and lines. So we, we invested money in getting everything set up so that Becky's business would be safe and secure and we could protect ourselves. 
and her clients against any hacks. Andrew has built her a powerful screaming computer before he was deployed and just built this monster of a machine. And then we found out we had to get this, this, this deal to plug it into. It's a big, powerful battery pack. And we plugged everything into it. We plugged the computer. We plugged the monitors. We plugged the printer. We got everything plugged into it. And it wouldn't turn on because we hadn't plugged it into the wall yet. I got to thinking about that, back coming back and forth to my mind from time to time. I thought, that is a picture of the church if I've ever seen one. You see, if I could just get you to think for just a moment about a power strip, you can plug your lamp into it, you can plug your blender into it, you, you can plug your television into it. In other words, we got a computer, we got a monitor, we've got printers, we got whatever else Becky's got there. And we've got it all plugged in to this power supply. The power supply is kind of like a church. Each of you, you bring your unique talents, you bring your spiritual gifts, you bring your lives, you bring your witness, your story. We all come together. And if we're plugged in, but the church is not plugged in, then none of us have any power. But when you plug that power cord or that power strip into the wall. And I wanted to illustrate that here, but I don't have anything close enough to do it with. I could turn on the lights. I could turn on the ninja blender and make myself a little smoothie while I was preaching up here to you. I could even plug in my home pod and say, Siri, sing us a praise song. And Siri was, as a matter of fact, I asked you the other day, Siri, who's your favorite preacher? And she says, Dennis, you are. I really like Siri. I had to program her to do that. <laughs> But I thought I could do all of this and have so much fun with it. But you see, the church has to be plugged in to Christ. And we have to be plugged into the church together to accomplish what God wants us to do. So when the evening came, all this momentum is going on. Jesus said to his disciples, you see, you have to obey God, I don't want to leave. This is so successful. This is so good. Look at the crowds. Look at the offerings, Lord. You know, everybody even knows who we are, Jesus. Why do we have to leave? And we're going across the lake? I don't even like those folks over there. I don't like those people. And then when they get to where they're going, Jesus takes them to the cemetery. And I imagine they were going, not me, Lord. I'm not, no cemetery for me. I will be unclean. I can't go to the temple to pray. I, I can't go to the temple. Jesus, you can't even go. I mean, you're telling God that the temple that was built for, he can't even go. I wonder if Jesus has ever been told, you're not welcome here in this church. I wonder if he's ever been told the cross is not welcome here. I wonder if he's ever been told the blood is not welcome here. One of our local hospitals, one of the staff members asked me one time when I came to the church, never, when I came to visit the hospital, please don't talk about the cross and please don't talk about the blood. And I said to him, I said, then I'm not being faithful to the gospel. He says, well, I don't think that's healthy for patients when they're sick to hear about. And I looked at him, I says, doctor, everybody I pray for that gives their heart to Jesus, they're saved, they're born again. The blood has washed them of their sins. They're on their way to heaven, not to hell. Can you say that everybody you've worked on is going to get healed, is going to get well? He said, no. Don't ever be ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? In that wonderful little book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words. 
you are disobedient. You're trying to keep some part of your life under your own control. This is what is preventing you from listening to Christ and believing His grace. You cannot hear Christ because you are willfully disobedient. Somewhere in your heart, you're refusing to listen to His call. Your difficulty is your sins. For only those who obey can believe, and only those who believe can obey. When you put your faith in Christ, trying to ask an unbeliever to do what God has called us to do is, asking, is like asking me to lift a thousand pounds. I can't do it. But when you put your faith in Christ, the impossible becomes possible. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? When you put your faith in Christ and you obey him, the impossible becomes possible. See, God gives me power for my powerlessness. He gives me power. I remember when these legs wouldn't work. I remember learning how to walk. I know what it means to be powerless. I know I have never been the Tom Cruise of the Mission Impossible movies. Do you know, I don't know if this ever happened to any of you, but have any of you ever been the last to be chosen for the softball team, the last to be chosen for the baseball team, the last to be chosen for the pickup basketball team? I mean, the first person chosen is always the Tom Cruise. The, he can climb up the, the highest hotel in Dubai. He can hang on to the side of a flying train. He can lay down just in time before his kids cut off at a speeding train. On. He can fly outside of an airplane. And I mean, I'm not being cheap shot. I mean, he does these, these, these things himself. And I go, wow, I'm amazed. But you see, Tom Cruise by himself could never accomplish the mission. The 60s movie, they were just a group of ordinary people who had some talent that God used, or God used, that the producers wrote about of a team that accomplished impossible things. When you and I are plugged into the Holy Spirit, when you and I are agreed on the message, God gives us power for our powerlessness. I was in the hospital and during the height of COVID and there was an emergency and they let me come in and I was gowned up, masked up and everything like that. And it's so nice to be able to go and pray with people again in the hospital. But I remember asking a doctor, who's really in the hospital? Who's really sick right now? He told me, he says, this hospital is full of optimists. I said, optimists? He goes, yeah. They don't believe they're going to catch COVID, so they don't wear their masks. They don't believe they're going to catch COVID, so they don't get vaccinated. I said, really? That's an interesting way of looking. He said, yeah, they just, they're optimistic. They believe that nothing could harm them. So they got COVID and they're very sick. You see, optimism is not the same as faith. Now, I don't want you to be negative, but some of you, you may still be at home because you're afraid to get out. I know we're still dealing with COVID. My wife and my daughter have it right now, and fortunately, the symptoms are mild, but we're, we're, we're thankful they're vaccinated, and, and they, sh you know, they should bounce back pretty quickly. We're praying they do. You pray for us. But the negative people are still afraid to get out. It's not a matter of being optimistic it's a matter of having faith in God. For the Bible says in Isaiah 40, verse 29, He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Can we read that together? He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. So I want you to think about what the Bible says about power. The Bible says that the great shall be the least. The Tom Cruise shall be the least. 
The Bible says that the lowest shall be exalted, that the weak shall inherit the earth, the poor shall be rich, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And the Bible goes on to say that those who die will dance a victory dance because when they die in the name of Jesus, they wake up in glory and their blood, if they're martyred, their blood shouts out a louder sermon than any sermon I could ever preach while I was alive. We have to understand God always gives power. And when God gives me power, he gives me power so that I can go forward. I can move ahead. In our Wednesday night Bible study, our midweek service, recently a lady asked me a question during our Q&A session. She says, what if I'm having trouble forgiving myself of things I've done in the past? And I told her these wise words that were told to me. You don't live there anymore. You don't live there anymore. The past is gone. Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus calls you to move forward with your life. Now, here's the deal. And if you were in the prayer service last night, I said this last night. My life story cannot be written until I breathe my last breath. And I want to be faithful to the very end. Because I know so many people that even when they got in their 60s or 70s, they got discouraged and they gave up or they got lukewarm and they, they gave up their passion. I want to... I don't want to burn out. I don't want to rust out. I want to simply be on fire till the day I die. Can you say amen to that? I hope you have that same prayer. Joash. <coughs> Joash was a young king, just a boy when he became king. He had a great pastor. His name was Jehoiada. Jehoiada pastored him, loved him, and for 35 years, through Jehoiada's influence, Joash was this godly king. He restored the temple. He restored the worship in the temple. When Pastor Jehoiada died, Joash's heart became hard, and he began to turn back to the idols. Now, please don't miss this. He started well. What could cause a king, a man, that for 35 years had led this godly reign that God blessed to suddenly turn his back upon the Lord? The same thing that if you and I are not careful can attack our lives, and that is sin is always waiting at the door, crouching, looking for an opportunity to harden our hearts, to turn us against Jesus Christ. And yet God loving Jehoiada so much in 2 Chronicles 24, 19, he kept sending the prophets back to bring him back to him. The prophets warned him, but he would not listen. Listen to those words. He sent the prophets to bring him back to him, and the prophets warned him, but he would not listen. Do you remember hotel alarm clocks? We don't need them anymore. We've got our iPhones. But back in the day when I was traveling preaching 300 times a year. There were times I'd fly in at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'd land. I'd grab a taxi. I'd go to the Marriott or wherever I was staying. And I'd check in blurry-eyed. And I'd say, listen, I've got an early meeting. I need you to call me at 6 o'clock in the morning. Give me, don't stop that phone until I wake up and answer it. And every morning at 6 o'clock when that call would go off and say, good morning, Mr. Clanton. It's another great day in Seattle. It's another great day in Indianapolis. It's another great day in Albuquerque. I wanted to go, I'm tired. I haven't had much sleep. I've flown in. And I had kind of had to come to myself. 
And I feel like God has given me a message as an alarm clock for you, for me, for our congregation, that God is trying to wake us up out of the slumber. God is trying to say to us, I want you to pray with me. I want you to be a part of my team. I do love you. I will answer your prayers. If you call upon me in the day of your distress, I will be there. But in this hour, I am calling upon you to call upon my name for a lost world, to call upon my name for revival for America. Friends, let the Holy Spirit help you listen to this alarm clock this morning. Jesus says in Mark 4.35, let's cross to the other side because those lost people matter to God. Those Gentiles matter. And as God told Moses, tell the people of Israel, go forward. So as I close this morning, God gives me power for the mission, the mission of the church. That's why God gives us the power that he does. That whole computer set up and everything, if Becky hadn't gone into business, we would have never needed to have done all of that. It would have just been fine the way it was. But all of a sudden, the need for security and protection for others became paramount in our home. And so we made the appropriate investments so that the people Becky serves could be protected and she could do her job well. It's why God gives us power for mission. This week I was also in another meeting. I'm a member of the missions committee for the Michigan district for the state of Michigan. And Young missionaries, couple that's been to our church a couple of times, they serve in a closed country where everything they do, their lives are at risk for doing what they do, their lives are at risk, their freedom is at risk for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we even have to be careful how we talk on a Zoom call. And I remember when they were just kids and working at a Starbucks, her working at a store, paying off their college debts, so they could go be missionaries to this part of the world that God had put on their hearts. They were obeying the call of God, primitive part of the world. And I listened with their joy as they shared, and yet I listened also to some of the painful things they'd gone through. And there's such a sterling example of what I'm sharing with you today. But let me tell you why missionaries are sent. God sends missionaries to show something to show what a new life in Christ is like, to show the difference between sin and salvation. But God also sends missionaries so that they can lead people to Jesus and people can be saved. You see, if you don't know the truth, you can't save people. In other words, if somebody's having a heart attack and I don't know how to, 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 what to do in the case of a heart attack, I can't save that person's life. If somebody has drowned and we pull them out of the water and I don't know how to do CPR or give artificial uh, mouth-to-mouth uh, respiration, I, 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 don't, I can't save that person. But to the Christian, God has given us the knowledge and the power to be able to lead a lost person to Jesus Christ. But the second thing is, if I know the truth and I don't care, then nobody can be saved as well. 
And so if the heart doctor watches somebody dies because he doesn't care or they can't afford to pay him, so why should I help this person that can't pay me? If the, if the lifeguard goes, I don't care, I don't like this person, let them drown. We would call them hard-hearted and cruel and all sorts of things. But when a Christian knows the truth and doesn't care, Love and truth have to churn together in our bellies. Love and truth have to come together and create that fire in our bellies where lost people matter to God and they matter to us as well. And when those two meet, something miraculous happens. It's why in John 17, 18, Jesus says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. And then I want you to look at this story as I close. And I know this is the second time I said that, but I am closing. Jesus climbed out of the boat, and a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. I'm going to tell you, if they thought the storm scared them, this really did scare them. Number one, they were unclean. The ellipsis there tells you there's something else going on. He's breaking the chains. He's full of demonic spirits. And a crowd soon gathered around Jesus after he delivered that man and saved him. And they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. And this is one of the most beautiful sentences in the Bible to me. He was sitting there fully clothed, perfectly sane. Say that with me. Fully clothed and perfectly sane. And all were amazed. You see, when Jesus saves you, he doesn't just save your soul. He clothes you and he gives you back your mind. So what do we do with this? Missions is about saying to lost people, you matter to God. Missions is about knowing that Jesus saves, delivers, restores, and then sends. And God sent this man in Mark 5, 20, and he began to proclaim the great things the Lord had done for him. So would you stand with me this morning? And let me walk you through this real quickly, just what to do with this message this week. Who has the Lord put in your life for you to love and introduce to him? Take your notes sometime this afternoon and just write that person's name down. Write down somebody's name that is going to heaven because you shared Christ with them. Write down somebody's name that you know is not going to hell because you shared Jesus with them. Are you willing for God to use you? Are you supporting missions through your faith promise giving here at Woodland? And are you praying for our missionaries? And then finally, I want us to recommit because I believe this message is God's alarm clock for us. I want us to recommit to being the church that God has called us to be. I read something this week that just kind of blew me away, so I researched it. And the most, one of the most watched television shows on Netflix among young adults and college students is The Office. And the reason it's gone up in popularity, Pastor Corey, is because so many of them don't believe they're going to have the opportunity to work in an office because of how COVID has changed everything. And I thought about that. What a dysfunctional, I mean, it's a funny show, but what a dysfunctional, I, I wouldn't want our office to be that way. You wouldn't want your office to be that way, would you, Ed? I mean, it's just a dysfunctional team. Well, that got me to thinking, 
You know how people mock a show that, another show that I loved in the 60s, Leave It to Beaver. Anybody remember that show, Leave It to Beaver? June and Ward Cleaver and Wally the Beave. And I hated Eddie Haskell as a kid. And yet what a healthy family. And I know it was a, a fictional family, and a, but there were healthy values in that family. And then it was almost like the Holy Spirit punched another button in my life and said, you know, you have even made fun of an old song you used to sing as a youth pastor. I've said it like this. You know, we're not just talking about looking at our belly buttons and having kumbaya moments. And there was a point I was trying to motivate us not just to sit around. But in my mind, I went back into the 70s when I was young and good-looking, Corey, like you. And I was a youth pastor. And after a retreat or sometimes after an altar service, the kids and I would sit around and we'd be singing, Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. Oh, Lord, kumbaya. And that was a phrase that was used by the slaves off the coast of Georgia and South Carolina where I grew up at. And kumbaya meant, come by here, my Lord. Come by here. And that's my prayer for us this morning. That God will come by here. And this will be a power-filled missional church for the kingdom of heaven. Can you say amen? Stand with me if you would this morning. And if there's been like an alarm clock in your soul, and maybe you've been thinking you're not Tom Cruise, you're not Mother Teresa, you're not Billy Graham, you're not Lillian Thrasher, but we need you. And God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. And don't look at dysfunctional churches like the one that I illustrated that's just tearing itself apart without a pastor right now. But look at healthy churches where people love each other and they're involved in the mission of God. And then ask yourself, am I plugged in? And let's ask the Lord to fill us afresh and anew with his Holy Spirit. So would you make that your prayer right now, Lord? Fill me fresh with your Holy Spirit today, I pray. Shake me to the core of my life. If there's any idolatry lurking in my heart like Joe Ashes, oh God, I cast it down right now in the name of Jesus. I want to finish well. And while you're praying, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm inviting you, give your heart to him this morning. You feel something, you sense something in your heart. You want to pray. You want to give your heart to Christ. That's Jesus calling you. It's not an alarm clock. It's a call of love saying to you, I died for you. I'll give you a fresh start in life. 
And you say, why did he die for me? Because you and I have a sin problem. And all sin does is destroy our lives. And Jesus says to you and to me, like he said to Nicodemus, you may be cool. You may be a part of the cool kids group, but you've got to be born again. So would you pray this prayer with me this morning? Say, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for calling me to yourself. And this morning, I commit my life to you as much as I know how. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. And if you prayed that prayer, please let me know. You, if you're here and you prayed that prayer, stop at the crossing. We've got a gift for you. If you'll email me, I'll send you a gift tomorrow. We'd love to help you get started in your life with Jesus. I promise you, we will not bird dog you. We will not be knocking. We just want to help you get started on your life with Christ. Amen.